Leading up to Christmas, the BBC aired a four-part documentary series hosted by Dominic Sandbrook entitled Tomorrow's Worlds, the Unearthly History of Science Fiction. Despite being often quite dry, Sandbrook managed to tour the history of science fiction quite deftly, with each episode focusing on a different element of popular science fiction storytelling. Space, invasion, robots and time. As is the norm for these things, there was a heavy focus on talking head contributions from actors, and as most actors seem to have about as much in-depth a knowledge of science fiction as I have of the art of croquet, this often seemed like self-aggrandising. Still, some of the actor contributions were interesting. David Tennant is always good value in talking about Doctor Who, and one would imagine that Rutger Hauer could espouse about his role as Roy Batty in Blade Runner until the cows come home. But what was nice was Sandbrook's focus on science fiction literature. Granted, probably more by necessity than anything else, he chose to focus on literature that had a movie counterpart, emphasising pertinent passages from H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds and Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. But amidst Veronica Cartwright banging on about how uncomfortable it was to make Alien, again, we saw some nice contributions from Ursula Le Guin, Neil Gaiman and a decent examination of Philip K. Dick's output. It's always nice to see the literature get a look in, especially as science fiction is very much entertainment of the mind, and as such should be celebrated. In other cases, Sambrook was a little less impressive. He kind of dismissed Star Trek, only included Star Wars because of its cultural impact, and devoted far more time than necessary to Avatar. Granted, Star Wars is less science fiction than the others, so only devoting a few minutes to it is understandable. But Star Trek is just as groundbreaking in its own way as Doctor Who, so a little more consideration would have been nice. Nevertheless, most of the episodes had a good focus to them and were interesting and informative. I had to admit, there was nothing I didn't already know, nor did it introduce me to anything I hadn't already seen, but mentioning William Gibson and plugging Twelve Monkeys and Looper were notable inclusions. Another classic that was kind of given short shrift, especially in an episode devoted entirely to robots, was Forbidden Planet. Made in 1956, Forbidden Planet is generally regarded as one of the seminal moments in movie science fiction, and, as if to apologise for Sandbrook's rather casual dismissal of it, the BBC aired this magnificent movie late one Saturday night after the airing of the last episode of Tomorrow's Worlds. Erring on BBC Two HD in full widescreen, this was the best I have ever seen the film look. Forbidden Planet, for those that have never seen it, centres around the exploits of space cruiser C-57D, which has been dispatched to Altar 4 to locate any possible survivors of an expedition sent over 20 years earlier. They find two survivors, a Dr. Morbius and his daughter Altera, and that Morbius is hiding a dread secret. The first thing that struck me about watching Forbidden Planet this time out, probably the first time in well over a decade, was how gorgeous the film looked. Colours were sumptuous, the widescreen image was glorious, and the SFX, despite being nearly 60 years old, were still wonderfully realised. The BBC must have gotten a hold of the new remastered print available on the Blu-ray. 
The shots of the C-57D soaring through space were lovely to look at, and the map work when the cruiser lands on the planet was simply stunning. There was, apparently, a lot of thought put into the design of the C-57D, with the interior looking both functional and like a workplace, and the bunk rooms looking like legitimate sleeping quarters on a military vessel. There were a few errors in the opening sequence. We see the crews are landing in front of two moons, yet when the crew disembark, they look out at the same map painting, implying that the planet has four moons or other orbiting satellites. Sadly, dialogue immediately afterwards state that the planet has two moons. Oops. Watching it this time, I was also impressed by the cast. Leslie Nielsen is here as Captain J.J. Adams in a straightforward role, far removed from the goofball, pratfalling antics of his later career. Richard Anderson, better known as the Six Million Dollar Man's boss, Oscar Goldman, gives a very different performance. He's a lot lighter here than in that show, looser, more relaxed. Oscar always seemed like he had too much starch in his shirt. He and Nielsen also have the film's funniest line. When Adams says, so it's impossible, how long will it take? Referring to a damaged piece of equipment that needs repairing, Anderson replies, well, if I don't stop for breakfast. A rare moment of levity in the film. Walter Pidgeon is suitably off-putting as Dr. Morbius, that wonderful mixture of clearly intelligent but snarky and superior with it. And Anne Francis is undeniably gorgeous as his daughter Altera. It's she who will provide the main plot impetus. Morbius does not want to be rescued. As we will learn later, he's uncovered a secret lab of untold wonders, left behind by an alien race, the Krell. But his daughter, presumably around 18 or so, is undergoing her sexual awakening, and the sudden arrival of a number of horny spacemen who have been away from Earth and female companionship for over two years is both a delight and a surprise to her. Of course, the breakout star of Forbidden Planet was Robbie the Robot. Despite his clunky design by today's standards, he looks like a 50s robot should look like. He's also magnificently voiced and his lines are genuinely funny. One gets the feeling he's only added to appeal to the Captain Video crowd or the people who thought that this film would be more like this island Earth, as he has very little importance to the plot, but he's a welcome addition to the film nevertheless. Needless to say, the men all fall over themselves to impress Altura, especially Executive Officer Jerry Farman. But Altura has no chemistry with him, and anyone who's watched more than one episode of Moonlighting knows that the person Altura is constantly bickering with, Commander Adams, is the one she's really attracted to. Morbius introduces the Commander, and Doc Ostrow, played by Warren Stevens, who would later appear on Star Trek, to the Krell technology, and he's wonderfully pissy about it. But he warns the commander about staying, and, as the relationship between Adams and Altera deepens, the crew are attacked, as Morbius warned them, and Chief Quinn, Richard Anderson's character, is killed. It all turns out that Morbius is, in fact, responsible for the killings, as the monster is a deep-repressed creature from his own subconscious, given life by the Krell machinery, and it was this that wiped out the race itself. Forbidden Planet is therefore a rarity amongst 50s science fiction movies. It stressed ideas and intelligence over action and bug-eyed monsters. The alien race and monster are either not seen at all, in the case of the Krell, or only seen in outline, the monster from the id. The way the Krell machinery is depicted as being distinctly unhuman-like allows us to imagine what they looked like, a far more effective way of showing us an alien race. 
The violence is also well handled. The chief engineer, Quinn, is described as being torn apart. His remains all over the command deck, a beautifully evocative way of describing the man's death that conjures up images in the mind far more horrific than those that could have been shown at the time. The themes of Forbidden Planet are also intelligent and thoughtful. There is undeniably a subtext concerning the Oedipus complex, Altera's obsession with her father, but Morbius is the ultimate overprotective parent, and one can argue there is a discussion here about parental responsibility and ultimately having to let your child go their own way. There's a slightly subversive element to the relationship between Adams and Altera as well. While it's not spelt out, Altera's control over the animals is likened to that of control of the unicorn, something attributed to something only a virgin could do. After her relationship with Adam starts, her control lessens, implying she's no longer pure. It's very subtle, but it's there. The theme of space travel not being easy or safe also permeates the film, with two of the characters we thought would be central being killed off as the film unfolds. Of course, the main theme of Forbidden Planet is the danger of playing God. This technology wiped out the Krell race and ultimately claims the life of Dr. Morbius. The technology is deemed too dangerous for man by Adams in a decision that arguably has him playing God, and he destroys the planet. There is also, to me anyway, the additional theme that jealousy and love can sometimes corrupt the most hearty of men, and that sometimes man's greatest adversary is himself. One other area the film stands out in is its score. Rather than a bombastic but no doubt magnificent 50s-style orchestral piece, the composers Louis and B.B. Barron offer up electronic tonalities, a series of beeps, noodlings and blurps that, on their own, are probably used to torture people, but, taken in the context of the film, only adds to its retro-futuristic charm. that contribute to the film's success. This was the first science fiction film based upon a completely original screenplay, albeit robbing elements of Shakespeare's The Tempest. MGM were actively looking for a sci-fi project to capitalise on the success of the genre at that time. The budget was almost quadrupled after studio head Dodie Shuri just simply adored Arthur Lonergan's production designs and desired to see them realised on film, and the cast all played it completely straight. It's all these elements and more, the colour, the use of cinemascope, the robot, all of these things contribute to make Forbidden Planet what it is. And what it is, is a great piece of movie science fiction that, predictably, bombed in the age of bug-eyed monsters and Cold War paranoia. Like other great movies that flopped at the time, It's a Wonderful Life being the most obvious example, the movie came into its own on television and developed a following commensurate to its quality. The retro 50s chic design of the technology actually adds to the film's appeal, as does its outlook in faith and religion. The design work is exemplary and the FX still hold up well. Watching it, it reminded me a lot of Star Trek The Motion Picture, another movie that stresses 
thought and imagination over action and melodrama. There are a few problems with the picture. It's not perfect. Some of Earl Holliman's work as the cruiser Cook is a little broad and over the top. And the final fate of Doc Ostrow is kind of glossed over in the film after he attaches himself to the Krell mind meld. But these are minor quibbles in a piece of work that has not only stood the test of time, but is set apart from it and thus becomes a true classic. If you can get a hold of this HD widescreen print, I urge you to do so, especially if you like a little thought in your science fiction adventure stories. Forbidden Planet has also left a huge legacy over the years, both obvious and subtle. Its themes, and indeed its entire premise, would be lifted almost wholesale for Star Trek nearly ten years later, and when watching it now, it's hard not to imagine Captain Kirk, Mr. Spock and Dr. McCoy in the main roles. Granted, Star Trek wouldn't have had the courage to kill the first officer off, as Forbidden Planet did, but this would make a decent episode of that show. Robbie the Robot would obviously influence the robot from Lost in Space, whilst the Krell Caves would be hugely influential on Babylon 5. The shuttle pods that Dr. Morbius travels around in are also similar to the ones appearing in Babylon 5, as well as those that appear on Moonbase Alpha in Space 1999. The whole tone of the film, the deliberate, straight-laced acting, the quiet, subtle moments of humour, the pensive tone and semi-realistic approach to space travel would also be the approach taken by 2001 A Space Odyssey in 1968. The Innovation Comics Company published an adaptation of the film in 1993. Running for four issues and adapted by David Campitti and Derek Gross Sr., it's an interesting curio for fans of the film as it has a few small lines of dialogue not present in the movie and explains better that Doc Ostrow dies after his mind meld with the Corel machinery, something glossed over in the movie. Other than these elements, though, this isn't at all a pleasurable read. The word balloons are awkwardly placed and in some cases don't flow from one to the next, leaving even this seasoned comics reader baffled as to the order of the dialogue. If I hadn't watched the film just before reading this, there's a lot of places where I would have thought the dialogue was gibberish. To be honest, this re-screening of Forbidden Planet in glorious HD widescreen was the best thing that came out of Tomorrow's Worlds. In the past, when the BBC has produced these kind of things, they followed them up with classic genre movies, but this time they kind of dropped the ball. One episode ran over an hour late due to the snooker overrunning, something unforgivable in this age of video on demand, and the only other sci-fi flick of note they ran was Steven Spielberg's Minority Report. Whilst this is certainly one of the better entries in Spielberg's most recent canon, a rescreening of other better movies like Twelve Monkeys, Brazil, Blade Runner, or even some classics like Day the Earth Stood Still wouldn't have gone amiss. Still, a noble attempt by the BBC to give science fiction some much-needed love. Speaking of gorgeous transfers, Network Video released a teaser for Space 1999's second season Blu-ray release. Limited to 999 copies, this gives fans a look at the two-part episode of The Bringers of Wonder and, as a bonus, the movie that was cobbled together from these two episodes, Destination Moonbase Alpha. The Bringers of Wonder, for those that have not seen it, centres around a faster-than-light Earth vehicle that approaches Alpha, purporting to be from Earth, and populated by people that are all related to the Alphans, which is a huge coincidence that nobody thinks anything of. As the Alphans prepare to return home, Commander Koenig sees these creatures for what they really are, huge blobby masses of what looks like moss, with arteries pumping blood around their shambling form, and one giant eye located in the middle. 
Koenig is immune to the creature's illusions after having been attached to a brain scan machine when they arrive. The aliens are after the nuclear waste stored on the moon which they need to live. As usual for Space 1999, there's some woolly science, nobody seems to know how fire works in space, for example, and some silly continuity and editing mistakes, such as flipped footage of the moon buggy so that the numbers are reversed, and a difference of almost two years in the dates given between part one and part two, but spotting continuity gaffes is part of the fun of watching 70s TV. On the whole, The Bringers of Wonder is a fun romp. Space 1999 is almost the typical 70s science fiction show. It looks like every bad 70s sci-fi movie you've ever seen, and yet I find the show endlessly compelling, flaws and all. This is one of the better entries from the show's retooled second season. The story manages to keep the interest over the two parts. The actors are all pretty good, especially new addition Catherine Schell as Maya, and the SFX of the Eagles and the Moonbase are all remarkable for TV standards of the time. It has a rather cringe-worthy everyone-has-a-good-laugh ending, but if you're of a mind, this is quite fun, well worth picking up, or at the very least, picking it up when the full-season Blu-ray comes out, if that's where your inclination lies. Destination Moonbase Alpha, the movie that was stitched together from these episodes, doesn't have as good a transfer, which, to be fair, the slipcase mentions. Apparently this will not be part of the Blu-ray release, so for completists, this is the only way to get this in HD. To be honest, it's not that worth it. It's better than the VHS release from the 80s, but it's nowhere near as good picture quality-wise as the individual episodes. Listeners of this show will know of my healthy unfascination with alternate versions of things, and this is quite interesting from that point of view. It opens with a crawl, exactly like Star Wars, but presumably because science fiction fans are all illiterate, there's a voiceover reading it for us. That was very kind of them. As a crawl, it makes no sense. There is no such thing as far out in the galaxy of the universe, for instance, and the setting for the film is upgraded to 2100. The movie has a couple of minutes at the beginning, utilising footage from earlier episodes explaining how the moon came to be blasted out of Earth orbit, most of it coming from the show's first episode. The film then has new credits and music. None of it is as good as the funky TV theme, and runs pretty much unedited from that point until the end, which chops off the ha-ha-ha-we-laughed denouement, and instead concludes with Koenig defeating the aliens, which gives the movie a far more downbeat conclusion than the episodes. Still, if you're of a mind to check out 70s sci-fi, if that's your bag and you've wanted to give Space 1999 a go but not wanted to pull the trigger on the full season DVD or Blu-ray sets, which can be quite expensive, I urge you to give this a go. However, having said that, Network TV, the website, recently had a sale on Space 1999's first season Blu-ray where they were selling the lot for less than £15. At that price, it's worth checking out for the first episode alone. has run a tad short. 
I normally like to make these 30 minutes to 45 minutes. So we'll check into the email sack and see what we have. So, here we go. Our first email is from Jason Trenner, who emailed in with Not Spam. Palace of Glittering Delights, wondering where Transformers Generation would fall into this. Uh, given that I know little about Transformers, I can't really comment on where Transformers Generation 1 would fall into the reformatted television shows that we were talking about in the show that Jason's addressing. Jason continued by saying that if you didn't tell me this was a new theme song for the A-Team's fifth season, I think there was some fan remix someone had posted on YouTube. Wolf, I don't really remember, beyond it being used as a running gag by this guy who used to do comic reviews in 20 minutes, and of course yourself on the Fantastic Cast. And it seems like someone in the UK doesn't think highly of the fourth season, likely for good reason. War of the Worlds, I wonder if Killer Raven would be in the third season if it had gone. That sounds like a lot of how his adventures went. Book Rogers in the second season, looking for lost tribes of men amongst the stars. I thought Glenn Larson's influence ended after the opening movie. Jason concludes with two shows I'd list with very good revamps would be the second season of the 90s Iron Man and Fantastic Four cartoons. The shows got much better and the Fantastic Four show went with adapting material from the Stan Lee, Jack Kirby era and John Byrne as as you might as well go with the best. And if I recall correctly, Iron Man's first episode of the second season adapted John Byrne's Iron Man story involving Fin Fang Foo's race and their intended invasion of Earth. Well, they're both very interesting uh, revamp or suggestions. I have not seen either one, but I may see if I can locate them on YouTube. Thanks for emailing in, Jason. Chris Franklin also emailed in about the revamps episode. Hi, Andy. Hi, Chris. Great episode on the TV revamps. This kind of thing has always fascinated me, even on shows I didn't watch. Sitcoms seem to go through these changes more than anything else. One season wonders that refuse to die but come back next season with only the lead and an all-new cast and sometimes new premise, usually because it's a vehicle for that one star, even if it doesn't click. Would you consider season three of the classic Batman series a revamp? The addition of Batgirl probably isn't enough to call it that, but the format change to one night a week through the previously ironclad formula of the two-part cliffhanger out of the window. The show feels different and moves at a breakneck speed, except when they get those long drawn-out two- or three-parters. Yes, I'm looking at you, Londinium Trilogy. Superboy definitely had identity issues. Of course, everyone but Stacey Haydock was jettisoned from season one, including Superboy John Haynes Newton, but the setting at Schuster University remained the same. I'm a little foggy on seasons three and four, having not watched those episodes since they aired, but I know Clark and Lana went to work for some paranormal investigation group. That was quite a switch, and very left field of Superman's Superboy canon. I definitely consider the season three change a revamp, but heck, every season is practically a revamp. No to Batman, yes to Superboy. I think Batman, they changed the, the, uh, change the format of the show. They didn't change the format of the show, if you know what I'm trying to say. The premise of the show was still essentially the same, only they now had Batgirl in it. But the format alteration from essentially an hour a week down to half an hour a week, I don't think that would, under the rules I set myself, and you know those are purely arbitrary, don't you? I wouldn't say that Batman was a revamp. Superboy, however, uh, I would agree with you. Season 3, it was very definitely a reformatting of the show's premise. Um, Lana and Clark were no longer college students. They were interning, yeah, at some X-Files-inspired paranormal investigation group. I think it predates the X-Files, actually. So, yeah, that's very definitely a format change. Um, I wish I'd thought of that, because I would have included an episode of Superboy, because I think seasons 3 and 4 
of that show are actually the closest anybody has ever come to actually putting Bronze Age comic books on screen, ever. I think the, the only other thing that even comes close is Superman 3. And um, if you gave up on Superboy in the first year, go and check out seasons 3 and 4, maybe even season 2 as well, although I don't think Gerard Christopher, who replaced John James Newton, is as good an actor in seasons 2 as he would become. But certainly the episodes written by DiMatteis and Mike Carlin wrote a couple and a number of other comic book luminaries contributed to that show. And it's very underrated, I think, as a comic book show. I'm not going to say it's a great show, because it has moments where it's cheap, but the flying effects are better than Lois and Clark. Uh, Chris also included a little bit about V, which he says, that was a huge event for us here in the States. My entire family watched it. At the time, my sister was in high school while I was in elementary school, so it was one of the few shows we agreed on. I recall it being a big topic of discussion on the school grounds, with the lizard people revealed being a giant mind-blower amongst the grade school set. The second Minnie's lizard baby birth was also a shocking moment. Other than that, I somehow have very little nostalgia for it, which is odd given my usual nature towards these things. I recall watching both minis and then trying to get into the series, but yeah, it was half-assed. Or maybe even quarter-assed. I don't blame you at all for bailing out on it. I know that you didn't get Super Friends in your neck of the woods, but the announcer on that commercial you played sounded like Danny Dark, who voiced Superman during the show's long run. Chris, well thank you very much Chris, I could have been Danny, the guy doing the resistance is all that stands between us and the visitors, that guy, it, it's entirely possible, I don't know his voice sounded very familiar from other adverts Mike Bailey has almost emailed in, Andy so you've been doing Palace of Glittering Delights for a while now and I have been a lazy bastard about sending your email, for that I apologise profusely this show is amazing. Well, thank you. He says nice things. Uh, I could listen to you talk about television shows from the 70s, 80s and 90s all day and not get tired. Whilst you've covered some fantastic topics and had some guest stars along the way, the one with Bill Robinson, that other guy whose name escapes me at the moment, who won't shut up about how much he liked the fact that Sam knew Taekwondo was a lot of fun. It was your most recent effort that caused me to put fingers to keyboard. V. I was seven years old in the summer of 1983, and as I've mentioned to you on previous occasions, I was a sensitive lad. Things like people turning into monsters tended to scare the crap out of me. This is probably why I didn't watch V as it first heard. Not that NBC didn't try. The show was an event, which is saying something for a television movie that was coming out shortly before Return of the Jedi. I remember the ads for the miniseries coming fast and furious, and the mystery of who the aliens were was a big part of that. When it was finally revealed that they were lizards, there was a real sense of shock and awe. I remember watching the scene where the skin started to come off the alien that Mark Singer was fighting, and, to put it mildly, freaking the hell out. Because of this, it wouldn't be until I was 18 years old and out of high school before I would watch the original miniseries again. And it wouldn't be until I bought the DVD and listened to Kenneth Johnson's excellent commentary that I really started to appreciate what Johnson and company were able to do. Yes, the effects are a bit dated, but the soul of that movie will keep me coming back again and again. I haven't revisited V The Final Battle and have never watched the ongoing series, and when it comes to the latter, thanks to your show, I doubt I ever will. I'd like to watch The Final Battle again at some point, though. So thank you for giving this mostly forgotten mini-series its due. It was an enjoyable episode, and it's always fun to hear you analyse this sort of thing. All the best, Mikey Mike B. Well, thank you very much to Mike, Chris and Jason for emailing in. There will be more emails 
um, coming your way when I record a couple of other episodes which I've got lined up for while I've got some spare time but for this one I think we'll uh, call it a day the half an hour is always a good length for a show I think especially when you're doing it on your own and you've got no one to talk to see you next time with whatever the hell it is I decide to do goodbye